Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The first vote by mail ballots are hitting mailboxes. And the earliest in-person voting starts this week. If you don't know how you're voting, this is the week to get your shit together, folks. Visit votesaveamerica.com slash every last vote to make your plan to vote. Remind everyone you know to do the same and donate to the Every Last Vote Fund to directly support the work of organizers and volunteers in key swing states that are actively working to battle disenfranchisement in communities of color. A whole new batch of progressive merch just dropped at the Cricket Store with tees, hats, and bumper stickers that are all about demanding reproductive justice, canceling student debt, and making our democracy work. And you can show where you stand even as you sit in traffic. Head to the Crooked Store and pick out something to wear to the voting booth or just on your morning coffee run. You guys know how t-shirts work. You wear them on your upper body. Check it out at crooked.com slash store. Hey everyone, it's Jason, refreshed from vacation, excited to be back at the helm of the Take Line program. Thanking my co-host for holding it down while I recharged under the wonderful tropical sun rays in Hawaii. We've got a great show for you today. Tanya Ganguly, NBA reporter for the New York Times, is joining us to discuss ongoing uh, issues related to the Robert Sarver investigation and suspension. Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today is here to help us talk about is here to talk about the incredible story that she helped break regarding the misuse of welfare funds by former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant and Brett Favre and MLB reporter Mark Feinstein is joining us to help put Aaron Judge's feats in context. Now let's talk Robert Sarver with Tanya Ganguly. I was in disbelief to a certain extent about what I learned that had transpired over the last 18 years in the Suns organization. Um, I was saddened by it, disheartened. Um, I, I want to again apologize to the former, in some cases current, employees of the Phoenix Suns for what they had to experience. There's absolutely no excuse for it. You know, let me reiterate, um, the conduct is indefensible, um, but I feel we dealt with it in a fair manner in, in both taking into account um, the totality of the circumstances not just those particular allegations, but the 18 years in which Mr. Sarver has owned the Suns and the Mercury. Um, but, you know, part of the goal in being transparent here, and that is in issuing a public report, of course, is so that whether it's the media or the public can draw their own conclusions. Last week, the findings of a year-long investigation into Phoenix Suns majority owner Robert Sarver's racist and sexist actions to his staff made public the report led to a year-long suspension of Sarver, coupled with a $10 million fine, the maximum allowed, handed down by NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. But the question is, uh, is that enough? Here to discuss where things stand and where things might go is Tanya Ganguly, NBA reporter for the New York Times. Tanya, welcome to Take One. Thanks for having me. So I was just reading your report, your most recent report, about the pressure being put upon the Suns by sponsors, by uh, the NBA Players Union and others to uh, force Robert Sarver to step down, resign, sell, what, what, whatever the case may be. I was wondering if you might update us on, on the latest where we are in the wake of this independent report that outlined 
Sarver's uh, copious incidents of racist and misogynistic actions as lead governor of the uh, Phoenix Suns. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're kind of in the same place right now as we were at the end of last week where there was kind of a flurry of activity of people reacting to this and and trying to figure out what to do. Um, the PayPal was is one of their major sponsors. They're on the jersey. They have the jersey patch on the Suns jerseys. And they came out with a statement saying that um, that after their contract is up, which is at the end of this year, if Robert Sarver returns, they won't be, they won't continue to be involved with the Suns. And, you know, that was really the, that's really been the only sponsor that has come forward and done something like that so far. Um, You also had the MBPA's executive director, Tamika Tremalio, say that she doesn't think Sarver should ever be in a position where he's working with the players or the Suns or the players or anyone who's in, who's dealing with the players. Um, I talked to her last week and she kind of talked about how she feels like that's just an unsafe environment for their membership um, to have to deal with somebody that's been found to do the things that he's been found to do. And the, you know, the other place that there's been a little pressure coming from has been, you had two prominent players, LeBron and Chris Paul come out and say that they, you know, just, you know, in different ways say that the penalty was not enough. Um, obviously there's, you know, how, what, how you deal with that, how, you know, a, a lot of these entities want Sarver out, how that happens is a little complicated. Uh, so uh, Sarver has been suspended. Recent reporting by ESPN uh, and others has indicated that Sarver was uh, uh, not eager to step down, uh, fought the penalties. Parallel to this, he it had, does have a reputation as being one of the more litigious uh, members of the NBA family. And this is in the context of a, of a group of very wealthy individuals who are, are litigious in general. Um, the acting governor is Sam Garvin, who is one of several owners who signed a letter in support of Sarver uh, in the wake of the initial report by Baxter Holmes of ESPN. Uh, is there any, has there been any, any thought or uh, inside the NBA, NBA or Adam Silver's deliberations given to uh, making the acting governor, not somebody who came out uh, vociferously in support of Robert Sarver? Yeah, I mean, I forgot to mention that the um, the another another kind of pressure point in this has been there's been one minority owner yeah. of the Suns who's come out and said that Sarver should resign. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, every, you know, there was a long list of minority owners who, when that for initial reporting came out, said that they supported him and that this reporting doesn't reflect the man that they know. And <laughs> you know, when you read the report, it's yeah. a little. It's a. It doesn't. It doesn't quite align with what's in the report because um, there was there were a lot of very public incidents that were happening. Yeah. Um, that you know, it'd be hard to believe that nobody in the organization knew about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I it was really telling during Silver's press conference, and of course, you know, he works for the owners, and that's important to remember in all of this. Mm-hmm. But it was really telling in his press conference that, you know, I asked him if there was any conversation about removing him, putting that vote forward to remove him as owner. 
they would have to get three fourths of the owners to agree to that. There was no conversation about that. And there wasn't even any conversation about um, him voluntarily selling. I mean, that's something that the league could do. They could encourage him to sell the team. Um, they could impose a harsher penalty that also has that, you know, also has the, you know, the effect of encouraging him to sell the team, but those just aren't things that they have wanted to do or felt like doing. Um, at that press conference, Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated uh, asked Adam Silver uh, a, a question regarding, the, you know, Sarver's position and why he's being afforded the latitude to have committed these acts that have been verified by a, by a law firm, uh, independent third party, uh, when essentially no one else would be allowed to remain in their job if such a thing occurred. And then Silver said something to the extent of, you know, uh, to, to paraphrase uh, American Express commercials of days past, ownership has its privileges. Like you basically uh, in the position that he's in, there's only so much that we could do. And then uh, Silver later, you know, through his spokes with the NBA's spokesperson, uh, uh, clarify that, oh, I, I, I'm not, we didn't mean to say that there's two, you know, sets of rules for different people when essentially that is exactly what he said at the, at the time. I'm, you get the feeling that Silver is, um, is torn by this. Uh, but I wonder, like, why then it, I'm struck by the fact that in the report, there's three or four different instances in which it says, essentially, Robert Sarver is neither racist nor misogynistic, despite all the things that we said here. And then when uh, Silver is asked, do you agree with that? He, there was a long pause and he said, I believe something like, I, you know, I believe that they found what they found, the, the law firm. Um, why not then just come out and say, like, uh, why set the bar there? I guess that's what confuses me. No one can read anyone's mind. Why set the why set the bar for whether uh, someone is a racist or a misogynist at a level which no one can reach? It's it's a good question. Um, yeah, Silver definitely dodged. I asked him. I I've laid out a few things that were in the report and said, "Do you?" I said, "How is this not racial animus?" And he, you know, like you mentioned, like he was asked a couple times questions like that. And he hedged, he never said whether he believes it or not. He just said, this is what the report found. It is weird too, because I mean, I've talked to lawyers who say that this is not really the standard for harassment. Like, like you can harass someone without it being the result of racial, of animus, animus or malice, or, you know, that's kind of like the legal language that's typically used. So it's, it is weird that they chose to specifically say, I mean, and actually, even in the report, it says that it's difficult, it was difficult to determine the motivation behind what he was doing. Because like you said, Jason, you can't read someone's mind, you can't like actually get in there, uh, unless they tell you like, yes, I, you know, I, I hate women and black people like that's, that's like, short of someone saying that you don't, you haven't, you can't prove it. Right. So, um, it's, it's, it's odd that they didn't, that they use that kind of language and that that was the standard they used because, you know, that's just not, that just isn't the standard for wrongdoing in these kinds of situations. Um, I, I'm struck by the fact that in the wake of the initial report, Sarver, uh, 
himself released several responses um, that were extremely strong. Uh, I'll read one of them now. Quote, I continue to be shocked by the false reporting from Baxter Holmes. While there is so much that is inaccurate and misleading in this story that I hardly know where to begin, let me be clear, the N-word is not part of my vocabulary. I've never called anyone or any group of people the N-word or referred to anyone or any group of people by that word, either verbally or in writing. I don't use that word. It is abhorrent and ugly and denigrating against everything I believe in. Uh, the the um, independent report uh, initiated by the, by the league found that he said the N word five verified times as a reporter. What is your response to these kind of, this kind of attack directly on uh, the authenticity of a report that is then found to be true? Uh, (laughs) um, I, I mean, to some degree, I feel like they owe Baxter an apology, you know? I mean, he, you know, like most of what he wrote was confirmed, not just that they didn't find he was wrong, like confirmed. Like <laughs> They in fact found him. more. I mean, they found yeah. <laughs> more than what Baxter found. Yeah. I mean, they talked to more people than he talked to because the sons were encouraging all their employees to talk to him, which, you know, like you do, you do want to give them some credit for doing that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's when someone comes out that strong, I mean, the statements from the sons, from Sarver, from the, the minority partners, like they were so strong. I mean, they released a statement even before the reporting came out, if I remember correctly, yeah. um, to, to try to preempt it. I get, I mean, and I, and I guess like what, I guess that's because in case, you know, in case that scares the reporter off of reporting what they found, but once it comes out, I mean, don't I? I don't know. I'm not a PR professional, but don't you have to be pretty certain that it's not true if you want to attack someone that way? I mean, you know, it's. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll just let me read the rest of it because it's it's really <laughs> it's really jarring. Quote: The way I lead my personal and professional life makes uh, that clear. He says of his previous denials that he uh, had said the N-word ever in his life. Uh, instead of reporting the truth, he continues home stories based on misrepresentations from former Suns coach Earl Watson and other unnamed sources. He is clearly not a credible source, despite hearing from witness after witness that disputed Mr. Watson's stories. Mr. Holmes completely disregarded the truth here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's, uh, we will forget that he said this, <laughs> Robert Sarver, but I think, uh, it speaks to the blind spot uh, that the NBA has, which is this kind of disparity in power. I think Robert Sarver said that because he knew that he had the best lawyers money could buy and come after me, like make me, you know. And so uh, the NBA itself, Adam Silver and his uh, various answers seem to want to dance around this issue of the power disparity. Uh, and and the report itself kind of framed Robert Sarver's actions is oh, he's just joking around. What is you know joking around when it's your boss who holds the fate of a person's career in their hands? Seems to me that comes across different than just someone in a room that maybe you work alongside or that you is a colleague on a, on the same level. No, to to me that that sort of implication that this is just he he has a sophomoric sense of humor <laughs> was the most. It was really surprising that they would, you know, today take that, take that tact because 
I mean, we've talked a lot about the racial aspect of this, but the what he was, what, the way that women were treated in that organization, yes. both by Sarver and just generally by other people there. Um, you know, when I talked to Tamika Tramalio last week, I think she brought up, she was like, as bad as the racial stuff was, and it was very bad, the things that were being done to women were so much worse. And if you if you notice Chris Paul's statement, like he specifically called out, like, especially what happened to the women there. Yeah. And women are often expected to just be okay with what people want to call sophomoric humor, right? Like I've worked in sports a long time. I'm very aware that that's part of the, that can be part of the culture. Um, and you, you'd like to think that, you know, sports leagues today are figuring out that that's, that it, it's, it's damaging and it's hurtful and it can like affect people's careers and affect people's ability to do their jobs and make people feel dehumanized. You'd like to think that they would understand that, but that the idea that, that, you know, Sarver should be given the, the idea that, that Sarver's actions were just simply sophomoric humor, I think is a little bit regressive. The uh, Baxter Holmes and other uh, reporters have um, said in various interviews over the over the last week that um, the people interviewed for this report who uh, were released for their MD, many of them who were released from NDAs, are feel betrayed essentially that they they stuck their necks out, um, uh, and the result is you know, a, a very contextually for the wealth that Sarver has a, a pretty small fine and a year, which will pass sooner than you, sooner than you think. Do they have a, do they have a right to feel that way. Um, it, it seems to me again, that, uh, you know, the, the real weight of these incidents falls on them and their career paths and what's happened to them in the time that's passed. I mean, it's, I want, I, I also wonder how much they, you know, how much that the betrayal that people may be feeling is also comes from what we just talked about, like the fact that the report goes out of its way several times to say that he bears no gender based animus, uh, no racial animus. Um, you know, when when some, you know, the the toxic environment that they described, you know, seems to seems to clearly show a level of animus. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a sense. I feel like that I, I, maybe it's a maybe it's people being hopeful, but there is a sense of like maybe this isn't over. Um, maybe there will be enough enough pressure on Sarver to sell the team or to you know disassociate, resign. You know, I I could see a scenario where he resigns and isn't affiliate. It, it doesn't get to participate with the team, but still owns it. Um, I mean, I, I, I wonder, I want, you know, there's, there, there is, there are people who are wondering if like, there's a next step, um, and if that'll come, I mean, something would have to change for that to happen though, because right now, um, you have one sponsor saying that after next year, they may withdraw their sponsorship. You have, um, really, I mean, there's a lot of other sponsors that have said that have have not gotten involved. There's a lot of minority owners that seem to seem to not be on the side of um, wanting Sarver to step down. Um, so you know, it's it's. I I mean, it's it's yeah. <laughs> one one of one of Sarver's statements that definitely does not seem like a joke uh, 
it, and I think is one of the ones that uh, people are, are uh, you hear the most about because it is so shocking, but also uh, part of many people's lived experience is uh, when he told a uh, an employee that was pregnant at the time that, you know, essentially you can't do your job because you're a pregnant woman and also it's going to affect your career going forward. So why don't we get someone else to do this particular uh, job that you have been tasked with doing? Um, I mean, that is like cut and dried. I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that that is kind of like almost the comic book example of what gender bias would be in the workplace. No? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a lawyer either, it, but it does, seem, it does seem like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is... And this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, you know, once the year's suspension is over and say the uh, Phoenix Mercury win the, uh, win the title of uh, the WNBA uh, finals just uh, took place this weekend, a year from now, the WA finals uh, uh, take place and the Phoenix Mercury win and Robert Sarver could be holding up the trophy. Yeah. I mean, I am a little surprised. I, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but we haven't really heard anything from WNBA players about this. Um, from I've reached out to the players association, the WNBA players association, and they, they've said that, you know, they're going to meet and talk about this privately and share their thoughts privately. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it, I, it's a report that has a significant impact on them. I mean, we're talking about the Suns, and because that's the NBA team. I mean, the WNBA is the WNBA commissioner reports to Adam Silver, like this is not a wholly separate enterprise. Um, NBA owners own, own, like partially own the WNBA. So, um, you know, it's, I think that that's, it's, I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure there's, there are, there's, I'm sure there's a lot going on behind the scenes there. Um, but I imagine that'll be a pretty uncomfortable, that could be a pretty uncomfortable site. Uh, one of the, um, the things I've heard bandied about in, in the wake of all of this is, oh, what will the players do? Uh, you hear commentators say stuff like, oh, you know, I, I don't think it'll affect them that much. Maybe there'll be one or player or two, a handful that say, I won't play for the Suns or decline a free agent deal, but like the vast majority of them won't do that. And I think this kind of elides the fact that, you know, uh, uh, professional athletes, uh, don't play for 30 years. You know, they, the, the window for making money is, is very small. And after that, you know, it's onto something else. And WNBA players make a pittance compared to their NBA colleagues. I think the average salary for WN players is $102,000 or something to that extent. It feels unfair to me that what it seems like it's going to take is intense pressure by players who have a very small window for having a career uh, and potentially hurting their, uh, their ability to make money during that window in order to force Sarver out. Like that's what it's going to take or hoping that, you know, like I guess staking, uh, you know, pu putting our hopes on Peter Thiel's PayPal that they'll follow through with their promise. You know uh, who you got, Peter Thiel versus Robert Sarver. What are your thoughts on the fact that it falls once again to the players to to kind of like make a big deal of this? Yeah, I mean, you see this happen a lot. Um, the players, immediate is coming up in a week. You know, every team is going to have media day either Monday or next Monday or over the weekend and the Suns are going to get asked about this and they're going to be expected to 
you know, have a response. I don't know if you remember back when Sterling, um, when the Sterling thing happened back then, there, I mean, there were like, you know, people, media members who were saying what they think the players on the team should do. And players have since talked about how like, there's everybody had an opinion on this and they're like in the middle of the playoffs and trying to just trying to get their heads around this and not, you know, expecting them to, to make this, you know, huge change is it's, it's not really, it's not really what you you go into playing the sport to think, you know, thinking you're going to have to do. Yeah. Um, I think, I think like PayPal, you know, is one thing, but there, the Suns have a lot of other sponsors. I mean, their yeah. arena sponsor footprint. I mean, if that, if that was a company that, that said that they didn't want to be associated with Robert Sarver, I think that could make a lot of noise. Um, you know, the fact that there's been so far only one sponsor, one minority owner, a couple, a couple of very powerful players, but just, a, you know, to your point, what's it going to do to LeBron James or Chris Paul? How, like no one's going to be able to retaliate against them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, unfortunately, this often happens where the players are expected to take, you know, control of a situation that they didn't make happen. <laughs> Finally, Tanya uh, Sarver suspended for a year what kind of teeth does this thing have? We just noted that uh, the acting governor, who I believe still has to be confirmed to be the confirmed acting governor, Sam Garvin, is an avowed <laughs> Sarver loyalist. Uh, like, what's to stop Robert Sarver from, like, getting a burner phone and saying, Sam, hey, do this, do this, do this? Uh, is any indication of things in place to stop that from happening? I mean, I don't I, I think that there's. That there's a, there's a possibility that like the the league could the league can investigate that um the way that they investigate tampering mm-hmm. you know like get people's phone records and, and, and certainly tampering has been absolutely stomped out <laughs> and, and doesn't happen anymore which is wonderful <laughs> exactly so yeah i don't i mean there's i think there's definitely still a possibility that he's involved and that he flaunts this this rule that he's not allowed to be and you know I, I don't know how you saw that, like you, like the point you made about tampering. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us once again. She is Tanya Ganguly, NBA reporter for The New York Times. Tanya, thanks for joining Take Line. No problem. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Are you needing a safe space to learn how you can get your mind right? Tune in to Imani State of Mind, a weekly podcast hosted by psychiatrist and TV personality, Dr. Imani Walker and co-host comedian Meg Scoop Thomas, two smart and successful women and mothers sharing their personal and professional experiences to help normalize conversations about mental health. This is not your average mental health show, which unfortunately would include stuff like Dr. Phil. 
Each week, they do better things than that. They break down what's happening in news, pop culture, and their own experiences managing mental health. Together, you will laugh, keep it real, and create a safe space where everyone can get help with their issues. Nothing is off the table. Dr. Imani Walker and Meg Scoop Thomas discuss everything from relationships with yourself, your spouse, and your parents to the realities of postpartum depression and anxiety. Do not forget to take a deep breath, find your calm, and get into Imani's state of mind with new episodes dropping every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Join Josie Toda, Alicia Pascual-Pena, and Yasmin Hamidi, three fearless young actresses, disruptors, and best friends as they navigate the issues that affect their lives on Crooked's newest podcast, There We Say. From hookup culture and social media to structural racism and LGBTQ plus rights, the girls are leaving no stone unturned and no DM unread when it comes to discussing what matters. They won't shy away from diving deep into controversial topics that are important to their generation. The girls even turn to their elders, actors, activists, comedians, experts, politicians, and 26-year-olds. <laughs> In an attempt to understand the world their generation was handed and what they can do to improve it. I'm slowly slipping into my grave as I read this ad. We promise you, you don't want to miss this show, Sonny. So grab your kombucha, your iced coffee, and your 17 other beverages and catch new episodes of Dare We Say every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Take it from me. Last week, never before seen text messages were released to the public that show former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant and retired NFL player Brett Favre involved in a scheme to, uh, according to these text messages, it seems, knowingly defraud Mississippi's welfare fund by rerouting their funds to uh, various uh, endeavors, including a volleyball gym uh, for Brett Favre's volleyball playing daughter. Bryant has denied any involvement with the project, which has emerged as the centerpiece of a massive criminal scandal in which prominent officials misspent or stole, again, millions in welfare funds intended for the nation's poorest residents. Here to discuss the fallout of these revelations uh, happening in real time is the reporter behind uh, the revelations, Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today. Anna, thank you for joining Tagline. I wonder if you could update us on on the latest developments uh, in this case of of uh, welfare fraud and the involvement of ex quarterback uh, Brett Favre. Sure. So um, most of the information that's coming out here most recently is within the state's civil case, which was filed back in May. And so Brett Favre is a defendant in that case. They're asking. Uh, to recoup $3 million in welfare funds from him, uh, $1 million that he received himself under sort of a promotional gig for the welfare program, and then $2 million that he helped funnel from the welfare program to a pharmaceutical startup company that he was investing in. And so, um, you know, a lot of this that we're learning right now is really more focused around former Governor Phil Bryant, but mm -hmm. Brett Favre sort of gets ensnared in that and, of course, is the is the name that's going to make the headlines. So Nancy New is this nonprofit founder through which many of these millions of welfare dollars were was flowing. She's the one who actually paid out to the volleyball facility um, and to Brett Favre. And she has subpoenaed the former governor, Phil Bryant, for his communication related to using welfare money on the volleyball stadium to try to get to the bottom of that. And um, 
the former governor has objected to that subpoena. So in an attempt to get the court to compel the governor to supply that communication, they have produced these text messages. Um, These are text messages between Nancy New and Brett Favre and the governor in some cases. And uh, they really show some of that kind of intentionality in terms of using this welfare money in this way. So, you know, one of the most explosive texts that we've seen here recently was between uh, Brett Favre and Nancy New. What they did was they were they were trying to find ways to basically move this money from the welfare program to these projects, but but find a way to do it creatively where they could get away with it. Right. So they weren't just stealing the money and putting it there. They were saying that they were doing things for the welfare program. So um, so at one point, Brett Favre texts Nancy and says, you know, if you give me this money, is there any way that the media can find out where it came from and how much? And of course, as we know, there was a way because we've we've done it now. Let's zoom out for a second. I think people might – some people listening to this might say, wait a, wait a second. I thought welfare, which I'll use as the catch-all mm-hmm. term for these kind of various programs that are meant to benefit the uh, underprivileged uh, citizens of uh, various states – um, I thought welfare was a program by which the government paid out directly to people who qualified for the various programs. Why is it then being routed to people like Nancy New, who apparently mm-hmm. then did uh, you know various things not to the benefit of the citizens of Mississippi with it? Right. I mean, that's just a common misconception. Um this welfare program, it was created in the 90s. It replaced uh, an entitlement program that existed before it. So we got rid of a program that said, if you qualify for this money, you get it. And we replaced it with a block grant, which sends it, which sends $16 billion nationally every year to states to spend basically however they wish. So there is a side of the program that provides cash assistance to very poor families. But in Mississippi, we use just a small percentage, around 5% of the money we get every year actually goes to families in poverty through direct cash assistance. Part of that is because we put such strict eligibility requirements on getting this money that people who apply for it are denied. And then we still get the money from the federal government every year. And it's not going out to families because frankly, over the last two decades, Families have said, forget it. You know, it's $170. It's been $170 a month for a family of three in Mississippi. It just went up to $260 a month. So if I'm going to have to jump through all these hoops and, you know, provide all of this, you know, basically they they force you to to, um, prove your deservingness of this money. You know, it's very condescending. It's very, um, you know, emotionally um, tumultuous for people trying to apply for this money. And people have said, forget it. So um, that money is not going out to people like people think it is. This is a semi-facetious question, but is there anything else that the state could be uh, could be spending uh, this money on? Is there any other issue? Are there any other issues besides uh, like a volleyball facility and, (laughs) you know, a biotech, a biotech company, a pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. company? Are there any other kind of like issues that might benefit the state that that may be pressing issues that the state has that maybe this money can be used for? You know, it's it's a common question that I get sort of um, sort of passive aggressively from people who are like, well, how would you spend the money? You know, and I'm like, well, um, I'm a reporter. I'm not a public policy person. But 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 
if the money is not going to go to cash assistance for people living in poverty because the state is just so ideologically opposed to providing welfare to people because they think they genuinely I think some people genuinely think that welfare traps people in poverty um, because, you know, creates dependency on the government. And this is a conversation that we should be having. I'm game to have that conversation. Um, some of our programs have not, uh, you know, put families in the best situation that they could have. And we need to talk about those things. But when people ask me that, I'm like, ever heard of childcare? I mean, childcare is like one of the best work supports that we can provide to working families. And it's so expensive right now. And there are people who cannot get to work because they do not have childcare. We could be putting that money just into childcare. And I think see such a dramatic improvement in the quality of people's lives and people's mo economic mobility and ability to provide for their families if we did that versus a volleyball stadium. So I did the math. And for that volleyball stadium, we could have provided a year's worth of childcare to almost a thousand families, which would have been life-changing. I mean, think of just a year under your belt where you're able to actually hold a job because you have childcare. That could put you on a trajectory of success. And, you know, we chose not to do that. And so the volleyball stadium, I think, is the thing, kind of the headline. Um, but people are probably not as aware of Provacus. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but yeah. the pharmaceutical company that apparently was uh, uh, producing a nasal spray that they purported could uh, stop concussions or, mm -hmm. or, or heal the effects of concussions. Uh, tell us about that company. Right. So this comes after the volleyball stadium. So um, Brett Favre is working with Nancy New and uh, at one point, he says that she gave him $5 million to build this volleyball stadium via grant money. This is a text message that we um, mm -hmm. obtained exclusively. So we know that he views Nancy New and the money that she's doling out as being his money um, is how he's portraying it in this text. So when he's working with this guy who developed this um, this drug or, or, or proposed drug, to treat concussions. This guy's from Florida and they get together because, you know, as, as you guys know, Brett Favre has had concussions in the past. He's yes. kind of like a good spokesperson for the need to address this issue in sports. And so they get together and they're trying to find ways to get money to invest in the development of this drug. So, you know, clinical trials, phase one trials. Um, and, and, um, he, he, he tells the guy, you know, we can go to Nancy New. I know that she has money because she gave me $5 million for volleyball <laughs> last year. And so they um, first they have a meeting with the governor, former governor Phil Bryant, and a fundraising meeting is what they're calling it, um, to try to find investors uh, to put money into this company. And then a few days after that, they get with Nancy New um, at Brett Favre's house, actually. They meet with Nancy New and John Davis, the former director of DHS, who is also facing charges in the scandal, and um, a few other people, and they commit to putting basically $2 million in welfare money into this project. Um, <clears throat> that project hasn't really uh, come to fruition. Um, I think well, we wait, they might we wait be... With, we wait with bated breath yeah, for this wonder Yeah, project. exactly. Well, yeah, because Mississippi invested in it. So, I mean, like, can I... I should be able to get some of that for free or something. It's my tax dollars that went to, to it. Um, then Governor Phil Bryant also, it seems, uh, and you have reported, uh, appeared to accept stock in the company. 
just days after leaving the governorship. I think he would later say that, uh, oh, I was too busy to really understand like what I was talking about when this happened. Uh, what What's that about? Yeah, so when they first went to the governor to try to get support for this uh, concussion drug research, uh, they said, you know, we're, we're, we're willing to cut you in. We need to, we'll give you some stock in exchange for your help. And at one point, Brett Favre suggested to the owner, you know, if it's legal, we need to cut him in. If it's not, I'll give him some of my shares is okay. what he said. Yeah. So um, they're communicating this with the governor and the governor in about a month before he leaves office, the owner of the company is like, we really want to cut you in now. And he's like, we have to wait until I leave office. Okay. Why do we have to wait until we leave office? Um, Two days after he leaves office, there's a text uh, from the the owner's company, the the, the company's owner that says, um, you know, we want to cut you in now, um, now that you're unemployed. And he says, sounds good. Where would be the best place to meet? And then they discuss where they're going to meet to to make this deal happen. Brett has not been charged with anything to to this point, but is there actually any kind of suggestion that he could be charged with a crime? It seems uh, it's unclear right now whether that could be the case. Yeah, you know, the federal, um, the FBI is the one investigating the case right now, and they're pretty tight-lipped in terms of what they're looking at and how far they are in this investigation. But, you know, he has been charged civilly. He is facing civil charges in a uh, big civil litigation that the state is bringing against um, 38 people or companies who received this money improperly. But um, but as far as the federal criminal investigation, we're still waiting to see what happens. But I do want to note that someone has already pled guilty to charges related to funneling this welfare money to the volleyball stadium. So, you know, prosecutors have determined that that was a crime. So if we're if we're talking about, you know, whether that was even legal or not, well, someone already is, you know, facing a prison sentence related to that money going to the volleyball stadium. And in that plea agreement, it's that the person who pled guilty admitted to working with John Davis and others in order to make that deal happen. And this is Nancy New, correct? It's actually Nancy New's son that pled guilty to that. So one of the uh, incidents of you know, shady payments from Nancy New's group that I found fascinating uh, was, you know, 160 grand to uh, the son of former WWE wrestler Ted, the million dollar man DiBiase to spend time at a rehab center. Um, Are there there any other, uh, you know, similar uh, incidents of, you know, misrouting of payments that maybe aren't going to uh, hit the news because of the kind of flashiness of the of the allegations against uh, Brett and former Governor Phil Bryant. Right. So the deal with the the wrestler that you're talking about, Brett DiBiase, the son of Ted DiBiase um, of WWE fame, um, it is actually very significant to the overall case because it the tip about fraud related to payments to him is what spawned this entire investigation in the beginning. Um, now, it wasn't just that welfare money was used to pay for his his rehab stint. He was actually working under the department on a contract to provide opioid addiction education to people across the Great. state. So he was essentially a, um, a spokesperson for you know the, um, the damaging effects of opioids. Meanwhile, while he was supposed to be working under that contract, he was actually in rehab himself. 
um, in Malibu at a luxury rehab facility that was also being paid for with welfare funds. He has pled guilty, by the way. So he is um, he hasn't been sentenced yet, but he has pled guilty within this scheme. Now, one of the, the, the pieces of this story that I'm most fascinated by is not just this deal about this, you know, hundred to two hundred thousand dollars that went to uh, Brett DiBiase, but his family overall received five million dollars from this welfare program. Um, three million of which went to his brother Teddy Jr. to essentially deliver motivational, like self-help training to state employees across the state. And I mean, this gets really fascinating because you're looking at a PowerPoint that he you know, was using as part of his speech where he's like up there in the ring wrestling. And you're kind of like, how does this translate to welfare programming in Mississippi? But they were so convinced that they were doing something really cool with this, that the Department of Human Services director, John Davis, actually went to Congress, testified before Congress about how great our social safety net program is operating in Mississippi and named that program where Teddy DiBiase was providing you know, basically evangelizing state employees across the state um, as an example of how well our program was operating. So that just goes to show, you know, some of this was happening kind of in broad daylight and no one was questioning it. You know, along those lines, are there anything, is there anything else that that your uh, really incredible reporting at Mississippi Today has turned up that um, has surprised you that maybe people aren't aware of yet? I think the the wrestler thing is is kind of an untapped story that I'm very eager to tell um, eventually, and and that really just goes to that speaks to the the larger issue of you know what we do with these funds, and 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 even larger than that, you know what it says about the state's regard for people in poverty. You know, this is a welfare program, again, $16 billion that goes out nationally that is, in, for the most part, not being used on evidence-based practices for interrupting generational poverty. It's being used to push this ideological agenda that people in poverty just need a pep talk from a WWE wrestler in order to escape poverty. And I think that's the really crucial kind of overarching story that I want people, I want to get across to people. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Your reporting is, has been amazing on this. Um, and it's, uh, it's gratifying to watch this story break nationally. Thank you so much. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. The first vote by mail ballots are hitting people's mailboxes and the earliest in-person early voting starts this week. Do you know how you're voting? If the answer is it's September, I haven't thought about it. I don't even have a Halloween costume yet. This is the week to get your shit together, at least on the voting thing. 
Voter suppression efforts have ramped up following the 2020 election, making it even more critical to ensure that every American has access to the ballot box. At Vote Save America, you can find the most up-to-date information on what you need to make sure your vote is counted in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Use our ballot-ready tool to crest your ballot, find out how you can return it, or get a reminder for when in-person early voting locations become available in your state. Twin in November, it's going to take every single one of us making our plan to vote, getting involved, and reminding everyone we know to do the same. Once you've made your plan to vote, visit votesaveamerica.com slash vote to find out what you can do next, including donating to the Every Last Vote Fund to directly support the work of community organizations, organizers, and volunteers in every state that are actively working to battle disenfranchisement in communities of color, including in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and more. And the pitch. Deep to left. There it goes. He's run away from Ruth. Home run number 59 for Aaron Judge. And it's 10-4 Yankees. Unbelievable. New York Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge is chasing ghosts as the Major League Baseball regular season nears its end after smashing two more home runs over the weekend against the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, Mr. 99 is just two more bombs away from tying the Yankees all-time record of 61 home runs held by the great Roger Maris. Judge is also vying to become the third Yankee in team history to win the MLB Triple Crown. Here to help us put Judge's feats in perspective is executive baseball reporter for MLB.com, Mark Feinsand. Mark, welcome to Take Mike. Mark, thanks so much for joining us to talk about a, a little underdog team known as the New York Yankees and a and a spunky little player named Aaron Judge. Uh, Judge hit numbers 58 and 59 this weekend. What's it like to just watch him? Uh, probably the same as it is for you to watch him. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. he he just he's he's become that guy who every time you see that he's coming up in the next inning, you, you just have to sit there and wait and just stay tuned and watch the at bat because this is not a situation where, um, yeah, he's got 59 home runs and each one of them seems pretty impressive in its own right. But the guy's also hitting 316. He's, right. what, one point back of, of leading the league in hitting. He's a good hitter. He's not just a uh, – you think about, like, Joey Gallo, 40 home runs in some years, but he's hitting, like, 190 while he's doing it. So it's home run or strikeout, maybe a walk in there once in a while. Aaron Judge is just a fun guy to watch. He had a game the other day where he had five balls put in play, and every one of them was hit at 110 miles an hour or harder. First time that's ever been done by a player since StatCast started uh, following these things. So, uh, you know, every time he steps up, you just – anything can happen. Uh, and obviously playing on on that little scrappy team, you mentioned the Yankees, uh, and, and you know, the fact that his, his, his numbers mean something because this team is yeah. – trying to hold on for dear life uh he's just it's just fun to watch I mean, there's no other way to put it fan graphs now has the odds of judge going uh 62 and over at 90 percent that i think that makes a lot of sense they also uh, um have the most likely place for him to hit uh, 62 at 10 percent as being uh, against toronto which would be very helpful i think against toronto on the 26th how does this as a reporter, like, how does this affect the way? Uh, it's almost like you're you're uh, you know uh, you're waiting for a, 
a partner who is pregnant and could give birth at any time. Like, what is this like for you having to schedule your life around the moment when <laughs> this human being might break this record? Well, thankfully, we have a number of people on our staff, including our yeah, yeah. fine Yankees beat writer, Brian Hoke. So I don't have to really schedule my life around it. Yeah. Uh, if I'm there, great. If I'm not, there have been plenty of records. I mean, when I was on the Yankees beat, I was off the day Derek Jeter had 3,000 3, hit. So, <laughs> you know, these things happen. You can't, it's not like Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak. You could say, okay, it's going to happen on this date. Uh, and you make sure that you're, you know, not off. Something like this, I mean, Judge could hit three on Wednesday night and it's over Wednesday night. He's got 62. So uh, there's just no way to be able to plan in advance and, um, you know, say I'm going to go every night, make sure I'm at the ballpark every night until till he hits it because it's just not realistic. But, uh, you know, for his sake and for New York fans' sake, uh, I hope that projection is wrong. Uh, they've got six games at home before they go to Toronto on Monday, and it would just be very cool to see him get to 61 and or 62 uh, during this upcoming homestand. Uh, they have him at 45% to hit. 65-plus uh, would just be uh, monumental. And, of course, Judge is set to become an ex extremely wealthy man, even wealthier than he is now this summer. Uh, any thoughts on what kind of offer the Yankees will proffer Aaron Judge? Well, so they offered him seven years at two hundred and thirteen point five million before this season. So that's mm -hmm. thirty point five a year, if my math is off, if my math is right. Uh, he's going to make a lot more than that. We know that, much, right? He, he bet on himself. He's going out and he's going to, you know, hit sixty plus home runs, and uh, he should win the American League MVP award. Uh, I know that's a hot topic in, in some areas. I don't think it should be that hot. I think Judge should be the runaway winner of that MVP. Um, so the bet will have paid off. I think the biggest question is going to be, uh, so the Yankees offered him seven. I think he gets at least eight years, whether it's from the Yankees or somebody else. The question is, does one of the other teams, whether that's right. the Mets, whether that's the Giants, whoever that other team may be, do they come in over the top and say, you know what? I know you're going to be 31. Here's a ninth year. We want you that badly. Uh, that could be the difference between him leaving New York and staying in New York, or leaving the Yankees and staying with the Yankees. Like if they're leaving New York, because it could be the Mets who, yeah. uh, who ultimately pay him off. I think eight at two eighty is probably about the area that it's going to settle into. Um, you know, give or take, right? Two eighty for eight years is thirty five a year. So that's you know, unless he's determined to get more than that you know, 36 a year, which for a long-term deal is the record right now. Uh, I think somewhere in that eight between 280 and 320, give or take, somewhere around there. You mentioned Judge declining that initial offer in order to bet on himself, hit free agency proper. Where do you rank this in terms of all-time contract year performances? It's, uh, it's pretty high up there. Uh, you know, I mean, you think about... Um, you know, a lot of times the the contract year thing really gets in people's head and they and they yeah. really struggle uh, to sort of have that hanging over their head. That's why a lot of guys, uh, you know, say all the time, well, I'm not going to uh, negotiate during the season because I don't want this in my head during the season. But, you know, it's always got to be there. Um, I mean, in recent history, Garrett Cole, monster free agent year mm -hmm. uh, in 2019 with the Astros, like a 20 wins and about a two and a half ERA. 
Uh, Mark Teixeira had a monster year uh, with the Braves and the Angels in 2008. Um, you know, CC Sabathia that year before he went to the Yankees, 2008, especially with the Brewers, 11 and 2 with a 165 ERA. Um, and then you think back to what A Rod did uh, yeah. it, with the Mariners in 2000, put up a huge year that got him the big, big contract in Texas. And then in 2007, had another huge year, won the MVP award, knowing that there was a pretty good chance he was going to opt out. So Judge's deal is certainly, uh, uh, you know, his contract year ranks right up there with any of them. It might be the best one. I mean, if you look at it, he's going to set the American League record for home runs, uh, you know, in this contract year. Nobody else has done that before. You mentioned that, uh, you know, in some quarters that – there's some controversy over whether Judge should be named uh, the AL MVP. Uh, certainly on the West Coast, uh, Shohei Otani has his supporters. What, what are the arguments for other players? Well, there are no arguments for anybody else besides <laughs> those two. Uh, yeah. And and quite frankly, I don't really see the argument for Otani at this point, other than the people who just say, oh, yeah, well, how many innings has Aaron Judge pitched this year? And I right. get that. And I'm not debating we know how good Otani is, but the fact of the matter is that if you're just going to give it to him because he hits and pitches, he's going to win it every year as long as he puts up good numbers on both sides. Judge's war is higher than Otani's war, which takes into account his hitting and pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, Judge's offensive numbers dwarf Otani's numbers. And quite frankly, since the middle of May, Otani hasn't played in the game that matters. He's just out there doing his thing with relatively little pressure on him in terms of. Uh, consequential games, whereas Aaron Judge helped build this monstrous lead for his team, and then as it was withering away, basically single-handedly carried this yeah. team to hold on uh, to, to, you know, they still haven't won the division yet, but they're up by, you know, five and a half, six games with two and a half weeks left. They're going to hold on to the division. When this team was injured, Rizzo, LeMahieu, Stanton, all these guys out, and slumping, Aaron Judge was the only one who was hitting. And and they won a lot of games just because of him. I don't even think it's close. Whether you know, even if we weren't talking about the AL home run record and a potential triple crown, which we are, uh, I just think Judge's year has been far more consequential to the league than Otani's. Uh, gaze into your crystal ball, Mark. Uh, you mentioned that the, he's in the running for the Triple Crown. Only uh, Gehrig and Mantle have done that for the Yankees. Uh, what are the cha- where, where do you see him ending up in terms of home runs and Triple Crown, yes or no? Triple Crown's hard to say. I mean, he could, you know, end up with a 320 average, but if yeah. one of the other two or three guys who are right there with him get a bunch more hit, you know, a few more singles, uh, that he gets hits, then then he may not win the the, the batting title. Uh, I mean, obviously the the home run and RBI titles are essentially locked up. The home run title is locked up. We know that. Yeah, it's locked up. Uh, it's locked no up. one's within twenty yeah. something of him. RBIs. Jose Ramirez theoretically could catch him. I don't think he's going to. Uh, so batting average is going to be the only thing that gets in his way. I mean, I think he'll hit somewhere between three fifteen and three twenty. Because as you see, even with this home run uh, chase going on right now. He's not getting up there just taking these big uppercut swings, just trying to hit the home run. You want to give him a pitch that he can drive, you know, into the gap for a double? He'll drive it into the gap for a double. He knows that this team needs to keep winning games, and he's doing whatever he can uh, to make that happen. So, uh, like I said at the beginning of this, he's a really good hitter. And for him to finish this season at, you know, 315, 
62, 63 home runs and 140 RBIs. It's going to be one of the great seasons that we've seen in many, many years. Finally, what does your gut tell you? He's he going to be a, a Yankee going forward, wearing the, the pinstripes going forward? My gut tells me he stays with the Yankees. I think they understand the meaning that he has both to their team on the field yeah. and to the team off the field, uh, the fan base. I mean, this is the guy that people pay to see. And if you want to draw in the kind of people that you want to draw into Yankee Stadium, letting Aaron Judge go is not the way to make that happen. So it's going to be costly. The Yankees have never been afraid to spend money before. Um, you know, Brian Cashman, really smart executive, Hal Steinbrenner, really good businessman, understands uh, what Judge means. And this is, you know, for a long time, it was who's going to be that next sort of face of the franchise after Derek Jeter's retired. Well, we know who it is. It's Aaron Judge. I expect they will sign him. Eight years, figure about $300 million, give or take. Uh, and uh, and within, you know, a week or two after that contract gets signed, maybe at the press conference, they'll name him captain and he will officially take the baton from Derek Jeter. He is Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Mark, thanks for coming on Take Line. You got it. My pleasure. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to listen to my pop culture show, X-Ray Vision, which comes out every Friday. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Drawer. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.